Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving lane races up the Manufique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Guns in Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup run. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Deborah has won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line locked together, dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Zima and Lightfingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away. And Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. Yes, welcome to the history of the Melbourne Cup. And it's always great to be able to have the chance to talk to the people who have been a part of this magnificent race. And one guy in particular is Michael Rod, who took the Melbourne Cup on efficient in 2007. He joins us now. Michael, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks, Brian, and thanks for having me on. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Um, the, the race, we're about to roll the tape. Let's listen to the race, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll have a chat. On the turn of the cup now, and Marla goes to the lead. Tungsten Strike has gone. Blue Tiger Ruin, Purple Moon are there. Black Tom is wider, and Zipping is coming with a run. Mastro Rod, he's got right to the outside. Marla, the leader in the cup. From Purple Moon, Sculptor, Doro Valley, the rail. Laser sharp runs on Zipping, and the Fisher is coming down the outside. Purple Moon for Raleigh. Got to Marla now. Here comes Efficient. He's mowing them down out wide. Yes, it was those famous colours of the navy blue, white armbands and white cap belonging to the Lloyd Williams family. What a feeling it must have been, Michael. Um, take us take us there, please. Yeah, Brian, uh, yeah, it's great to hear that replay again. It's um, Yeah, it brings back so many great memories. And Yeah, he was uh, he was an outsider coming into the race. Um, he'd run in the Cox Plate, the, pre, the Cox Plate um, leading up to that, and he sort of ran, ran midfield, but the best part of the race was when he got through the line. He ran right through the line, and um, he looked really good late. So I was more than happy to pick the, the ride up. And, um, yeah, I didn't have too many instructions just to, help him run the distance and make sure he got to the outside. He always did his best when he when he got wide. And um, we found a nice position coming down the straight the first time, but he just wanted to over-race. Um, I think that just him being a bit immature and a bit of a revy, he's a beal. Um, and the crowd just uh, really sort of fired him up a bit. And it wasn't until around the back, near probably the 1,700-metre mark, where he spat the bit out. And um, that's when our race sort of got going. And about the 1,000-metre mark, a few of the internationals took off and, and uh, the race tempo changed and uh, some horses started making. I was sort of, I was cluttered up in between them and at about the sort of between the 600, uh, between the 800 and the 600, I just went to sort of come out three deep and roll into it and um, zipping come around me the stable, mate, with Danny Nikolic on and uh, did me the biggest favour. He put me back in over a set of heels and forced me to wait a little bit longer and um, I let zipping go, then I jumped on his tail and... Uh, just slowly came to the outside and I was the widest runner when we straightened up but I had an absolute lap full of horse and 
I couldn't believe it because he pulled, you know, for a bit of the race coming down the straight the first time around the back. I thought it might have taken the edge off him, but he was just straight up underneath me when we straightened up, and um, I knew he was going to he was going to find find a bit. I just wasn't sure how much. And uh, as you heard, Purple Moon shot to the front with Ollie on, and um, yeah, I was probably a good sort of I don't know ten lengths off him when I straightened up, and but he just mowed him down. He, he showed his trademark turn of foot, which he's he's shown over the years, and. Um, I, I got to Damien pretty quick and then I gradually rolled past him and, um, you know, beat him by a neck. But um, I was exhausted after that. I was, uh, my, my lungs were cooking and uh, legs were sore because <laughs> he'd given me such a torrid ride through the race. Um, but just incredible, Brian. Yeah, the, the, the crowd, it was just, it was a massive day there. With the, it was a beautiful day. And, uh, yeah, I'll uh, obviously never forget that one. Absolutely, and uh, as you say, you, you cut Ollie back on Purple Moon. Ollie was riding 53.5 that day. You rode 54.5, $17 chance on efficient. And the, the amazing thing was he hadn't won a race for 12, just on 12 months because he won the Derby 12 months ago, the Saturday prior. So he went from a Derby win, he waited a year, and he won the one that <laughs> matters the most, the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Look, as you well know, Lloyd always has a target with these horses, especially a horse like Efficient. And he was going to go into the cup back up after the derby. He was in the field. Um, I think Craig knew it was wasting to ride him, but they, they pulled him out, um, thankfully. And, uh, you know, from that point, from the 06 Cup to the 07 Cup in that year, it would have just been focused on, on one thing, and that was to make sure he was peaking on that day. And um, he certainly did. You've got uh, a list of 10 rides in the Melbourne Cup for uh, the win on Efficient in 2007. Uh, but you teamed up with that wonderful horse, Red Cadeau, in 2011 and 2012. And he came here on four occasions, and you were on him twice. 2011, what a finish. And I called that race, and, and, and actually I, I went for Dunedin, which was a bit of a, a part of the time. But I thought I saw that little nose down right on the post on the inside of you. And history shows it's the closest finish uh, in the 160 years of the, of the race. So, uh, what a, what a day that must have been! Had you got up, uh, had you got up there in the last stride, and I think the delay for the print was the longest we've ever had. How, how did you feel with all that happening, you know, and waiting? Yeah, Brian. I um, I leading into the race, I remember um, on the Monday we did the Cup Parade, and I was uh, in the car with. Um, Ed Dunlop, and he just said to me, he goes, look, if the track doesn't get any rain tonight and it's firm, he just doesn't have a chance. He said he just doesn't let go on these firm tracks. So um, the morning came around, and it, it, as it transpired, the track, I think, it was a good four. And Ed just said, look, um, race day, he said, just just look after him, get him around the best you can, but I don't think he's going to let down on this track. And we had such a lovely run in the race. I did absolutely nothing. And um, as we straightened up, I was able to sort of come away from the fence. And I just, I hadn't done one bit of work. And I popped out um, coming in, coming into the home straight. And just inside me was Dunedin. And um, when I gave him a squeeze, I couldn't believe it. He just took off, you know. Um, I think he just loves the Australian, the Australian mm. environment. Anyway, that last 100 metres when we we're going toe to toe, um, yeah, I, you know, I was hoping that I could get there. We, you know, no, neither horse really got to the front. It was just heads up, heads down, and I didn't have any idea. I had my head down. I was pushing as hard as I could on the line. Um, yeah, and then we got around the back there, and all the field had cantered back, um, and it was just me and Christophe Lemaire 
walking and wading. And Christopher Mayer was out closer to the Yarra, to the river, to the Yarra River. <laughs> the, is it the Yarra? Yeah. And, um, the Maribyrnong, yeah. The Maribyrnong, sorry, yeah. <laughs> and I was back on the inside on the rail and Letsy was in between us on the pony and yeah. um, I kept yelling out saying, what's going on? He goes, they can't split them. And I'm going, what? He goes, they can't split them. Just wait, you know, and we kept walking. And like you said, it, it was quite a while. I think it was three minutes. Yes. And um, yeah. I got told that if that was previous year, they, were, they wouldn't have been able to sprint uh, to right. split them. It was actually some new technology that, um, that the VRC had got in between, Race Victoria, sorry, had got in between uh, 06 and 07. But anyway... Uh, Lindsay put his hand up to his ear and he sort of turned his turned banjo down towards me and said, I've, and he's going, right, yes, yes. And he looked up at me and for one split second, I thought, I've got it. And then he pulled his, uh, his uh, left-hand rein and said, sorry, Mike, not you, and went back to Christopher. Oh, no. That's how I found out. And then obviously the number came up and oh. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, I was just, um, yeah, look, unfortunately I've won one and um, I I, it reminded me of the year when Corey Brown rode Bauer and, mm. you know, he just got nutted on the line by viewed. And Corey was, you couldn't, he was unconsolable for an hour after the race. He was on one of the bunk beds with his face down in the pillow. <laughs> um, and uh, I thought, oh, that's a bit silly. You know, you still ran second. That's got to be something. But I understood his pain. I really did. And then as it transpired, Christophe Lemaire had to fly straight out to Japan. He had to literally get changed and go to the airport. So I had to do all the media for that Melbourne Cup um, as being the second place horse. But of course, the, the winning jockey wasn't there. I, I had to do a lot of media. But, um, you know, look, it's nice to go down in history. And, um, yeah, fortunately, I've won one and, you know, I've come a close second. So it'd be nice to get another one up. But uh, at least I've been there and I've, I've experienced that, uh, that emotion. What do they say? Second sucks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It hurts, it hurts a lot more. Michael... Um... Your first ride was back early January in 2000 at Gosford in a Class 2. Uh, your first winner uh, came up in July of that year at uh, at Grafton on a horse called Tomato Lass. Do you remember it? Yeah, look, it was actually it's Tornado Lass. Oh, yeah, what's it? Tornado, yeah. That's a bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, look, she, she was here yeah, my first race ride and then my first winner. She was really well-bred. She was by Dane Hill out of Clocker, who, who was a good, smart mare in a day um, that ran in a golden slipper and um, but she was a tiny little thing, and she was an angry little little horse as well. Um, but I got on really well with her, and uh, she was owned by some big clients of Brian Guy's, some um, Hong Kong owners. And uh, yeah, she went up to went to Grafton Carnival there, and um, yeah, I was able to get my first winner. So oh, that's a long time ago, uh, Brian. That's you know 20 years ago, mate. But um, yeah, it's been a, been a ride since then. It's been a great ride. You've got 34 Group 1 wins uh, on the board and my figures show 1,551 winners and 2,443 seconds and 10, uh, yeah, 2,443 uh, placings. Uh, 43 Group 2 and 42 uh, Group 3 and 41 listed races. So um, you're making a great fist of it and you've only been riding basically this century. So there's still plenty of M-Rod to come, isn't there? Yeah, I hope so, Brian. Yeah, look, I'm I'm in, I'm 38 now, so um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to sort of what's ahead. And uh, yeah, it's been like I said, it's it's been fantastic. And I wish one of those uh, one of those seconds was a was a first there that you you mentioned. But uh, no, it's been unreal. And you've you teamed up with Mark Cavanagh, and they were, they were halcyon years going back a few years too, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. Mark and I had a really good run there. 
um, you know, for about five or six years. It was uh, we had good horse after good horse, and uh, we're really, you know, very um, very lucky to have them all coming to our yard. And, and like I said, to, to race in all those all the Group Ones and, and run really well in them. Was Atlantic Jewel the best? She was, Brian. Yeah, yeah look, she was. Um, she was just something else. I've never sat on anything like her before, and um, you know, I don't know if I'll get on something like that again but um yeah she was she was just a freak and what she could do and the time she could run at track work and the, the runs she could make race day you just had to just had to give her room and, and stay out of trouble that's all I ever tried to do on her um I didn't try and ride a race it was nothing like that it was always just get her to the outside as soon as you can and keep her out of trouble because she she had a massive stride she was if you if you chose between being on the fence um, or getting like a soft run on the fence or being 3D, you're better off being 3D on her because when she's inside and she just doesn't use her stride as much, but when she gets to the outside, she's striding properly and uh, and she's in control and then you can just sort of pick your time to, to, to uh, make your run. So you, your career started out in Queensland. You've gone Queensland, Melbourne, and I want to talk shortly about Singapore and then back to Melbourne. So in that, um, well, it's 20 years now. You started in January of... Uh, the year 2000. So it's 20 years on the clock. Um, you've been a traveller. Are you settled now? Is Melbourne now your home? Yeah, look, Brian, I've just, yeah, had to come back from Singapore because of uh, the COVID problems and I won't be going back. It's um, unfortunately, they're just struggling up there a little bit at the moment to get racing back to where it was. So yeah, I'm in Melbourne for the time being and uh, and enjoying the new challenge. And how how was Singapore? You were very successful. You're successful wherever you go because you're very good at your craft. But what was the lifestyle like? You know, racing only what uh, once or twice a week. Yeah, that's right. Look, it's a, it was a really good lifestyle up there. Um, you sort of you go from sort of having to go seven days a week here in in Melbourne, or you know, you're sort of on for seven days a week. Even if you've got a day off, you're still fielding calls for rides or where you're going to be for track work or or trials. So. It was a nice change to go up there. It was um, very refreshing, and uh, I had a fair bit of success up there as well. So, um, you know, when I went up there, just my wife and I, and we've come back with two kids as well. So uh, it gave us a bit of time to, to get a family on the ground. But, um, no, it was a wonderful place, and, um, yeah, I, I made a lot of good friends up there and to keep in touch with them. And the, um, the, the, the humidity of the place in Singapore, we, a lot of people know it. Is, what's that like for your weight? Does that work in your favour? It does, Brian. Look, it, it does get a bit taxing at times, especially race day. Um, those Sundays can be quite harsh, especially with early races when you're in the peak of the heat. But it is better for your weight because you, you're pretty much sweating whenever you're outside, whether you're out just having a walk or you're riding track work or you have to go and lose weight in terms of running. So it just keeps you that sort of kilo, kilo and a half lighter than sort of what it does when you're here in Australia through the winter. And obviously being warmer, you want to be out amongst it. There's beautiful places. There's the parks and um, the nature walks and everything in Singapore um, are, so, you know, so well done. So there's plenty of places to go and have, have a run or have a walk and, um, yeah, that's motivating. It's a bit tough here. And when I first got back here in the depths of winter, um, I couldn't even go outside. It was too cold, let alone try and run in it. So, um, yeah, the, the motivation's definitely there when you're up in up in that heat. You took your first ride in the Melbourne Cup on a horse called Prize Gem. It was Media Puzzles here in 2002, and you ran 14th. But Prize Gem actually gave you your first Group 1. Uh, that would have been about uh, June of the same year, 2002. That would be right, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, that's right, Brian. I was fortunate enough to get on her, and um, when she came to Australia, I was at the Gold Coast at the time, apprentice there with Brian Guy, and um, she came over uh, like two days before the Prime Minister's Cup, and I won the Prime Minister's Cup on her, and then um, she had a run in between. I was suspended, and Grant Cooksley rode her in the lead-up to the to the uh, Brisbane Cup, and then I got back on her, and, um, yeah, she was a mighty little mare. She was only small, but just had a massive heart and could stay all day, and she was very good to me. She gave me my... Gave my first Group 1 winner here. Gave my first Group 1 winner in New Zealand. She won the Kelp Capital Stakes over there. And then I rode her in the Cor- uh, the Caulfield Cup. And then, obviously, in that um, in uh, the year that uh, Media Puzzle won the Melbourne Cup. And it's just something I'll never forget, you know, with everything that happened in the lead-up to Damien. And, <clears throat> I, you know, I didn't know many of the boys that well. But after the race, I remember coming in the jockey's room. And I've never seen it before. They... Um, the boys closed the door to the jockey's room and it was just all the jockeys in there and there was a lot of emotion, you know. <clears throat> it was um, it was just quite incredible to see how the camaraderie between all the riders and um, obviously Ollie was emotional and a few of the other boys were. And, um, I'm just, uh, I'm, you know, it was something something to behold. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. So, um, you know, and uh, it's obviously going to go down in history and um, I think I finished out. The, I've watched that race a few times. I was well out the back. I think I was watching the big screen on the inner field to see, watch the finish as I was coming up the straight. But uh, yeah, like anyway, she was a good mare to me, and um, yeah, it took me around. There was an amazing moment uh, on the racetrack, calling that race, and I remember as Damien was coming back on Media Puzzle, and we knew uh, we had some idea what was going through his mind at the time, having lost his brother less than a week prior. Um, to have that strength and resilience to to continue on and ride and take take his you know fulfill his commitment and ride media puzzle um, and I I'll never forget that image of as he came back before you come back down the race Patrick Smullen who was on Vinnie Rowe came up and put his arm around him and the two of them embraced on horseback and and that image has gone around the world but it's something that's indelible in your mind and. Uh, to hear you talk about the camaraderie that existed just as, as the jockeys pulled up and, and I, you could see them calling out to Damien and then you, you telling us the story about what happened in the jockeys' room. It, it, um, you know, it gives you heart, doesn't it? It's, sort of, it? it's what sport, and more, more than sport, it's what life's about. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing um, what Damien had to go through leading up to it and, um, you know, just the mental, the mental toughness of Damien. It's obviously everyone knows how great a jockey he is, but um, you know, he he always shows up race day, and that's why he's the champion. He is, you know, I've I've trained with him. I've I've had a fair bit to do with Damien going surfing, and he never um he never sort of he never never backs down from a challenge, whether it's out in the waves or whether you're training with him. He'll um he'll take it to the to the extreme and. That's just, uh, that's what made him the champion he is, you know. And, um, yeah, it was quite a day, Brian, for sure. And, Michael, uh, here we are talking to you on Monday. Tomorrow you're on Mustajir, which comes through its last start in the Caulfield Cup, uh, raced by Australian Racing Bloodstock and trained by Chris Lees. How are you feeling about this horse? Uh, Brian, he's, he's a horse that's been here. He was targeted for the Melbourne Cup last year. And just speaking to Chris Lees, this week, since I've been riding him track work and that, he just said that it, um, this is the best he's had him. You know, it was a bit rushed last time when he came to Australia and trying to get him to the race. But um, this year, he's, he's given him the whole 12 months to build up to the race this year. And um, each run, he's progressively got better, not only um, in his performances, but also within himself. And he's really going to peak uh, tomorrow. Um, 
I believe that uh, this is the best they've had a, ever had him, and you can just hear the confidence in Chris's voice. Now, whether he's got the class to win the race, I'm not sure, but he's going to run the race of his life, and you know, hopefully we can get to the pointy end and get close to some prize money. Well, your last ride in the Cup was 2014, and you ran sixth in that wonderful old campaign of precedence in the year that actually protectionist who carries Mustajir's colours, won the Cup that year and, and uh, beat Red Cadets. So there's a little bit of irony there, isn't there? Yeah, well, I hope hopefully there's, there's always a good story behind the Cup winner, so <laughs> let's hope there's something like that. And the class of rider here in Melbourne, uh, they say it's the toughest comp. Would that be right? It is, Brian. Look, um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being biased because I'm here. Um, I saw it from afar. And, uh, you know, before I left, it was tough, but... Now they've added a few more names to that roster, like, you know, Jai McNeil and these young guys coming through. Even the, the young apprentices are riding, you know, in no claims races and riding just as well as the seniors. So it is, it's a lot tougher now. And, um, yeah, it's, um, it's just, you've just got to sort of find your niche and try and try and get into it. Well, you're right up there with them. You're one of the finest in the land. Good luck to you. Safe ride tomorrow. Thanks for spending time with us too. Pleasure, Brian. Good on you. Thank you. Michael Rod. Victorious back in 2007 on a very good galloper, a derby winner, but the uh, the most important win was the day, the big day in the race that stops the nation, the Melbourne Cup of 2007 on Efficient. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup and it's always great to talk about the great race and the people involved in the race that stops the nation. Michael Rod, you heard Michael's story a little earlier. Let's turn the clock back to 1991 and the great mayor lets alone. Nearing the home turn, they race in the Melbourne Cup and over on the inside now Ivory Way have got a glorious run up on the inside to hit the front from Rashid when they turn for home. El Maheb further out and here's the mighty mare now. Let's elate sweeping on them on the outside and superimposed from the pack with a great run. At the 300 metre mark, Let's Elope has raced up now to Ivory Way and El Maheb then Magnolia Hall superimposed but the favourite has raced away in the Melbourne Cup. It's Let's Elope. This great mare has raced away from Ivory Way superimposed and then Magnolia Hall and Shiva's Revenge but Let's Elope has won the Melbourne Cup Let's Elope by two lengths Yes there she is, the great mare completing the double, the Caulfield Cup and the Melbourne Cup in the same year and it was uh, a birthday present that uh, this particular man won't forget he turned 22 on Melbourne Cup day that day the winning jockey Stephen King G'day Kingy, how are you? G'day Ben, how are you mate? I'm well, uh, bring back memories? Yeah, well, yeah, I've heard it a few times now since uh, I was 22, but no, it certainly does. Um, she was she was a mighty mare, the Caulfield Cup. She uh, she beat the handicapper, as they say. Bart had got her from New Zealand, and uh, we saw something pretty special when she turned up that day at Turnbull Stakes Day, early October. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think prior to that, there was a bit of news about her coming over from New Zealand, and and um, you know, she went to Caulfield and didn't go that well. On I think it was a bit of cut in the ground that day. But yep. uh, when I picked the ride up, I I was lucky enough. You know, I had a good relationship with Leon Corson, and Leon at the time was uh, main man for Bart. And um, you know, he, he said to me, "I've got a ride for you in the Turnbull Stakes," and and I was just excited to be on a have a ride in it, to be honest. And um, he basically just said to me, "Look, just sit her out the back and." Um, give her a chance to balance up and pull her out and let's see what she can do. And, and as we know, the turn where she came around and, and blew him away. 
And that was in the Turnbull, and then she dropped to uh, the featherweight in the Caulfield Cup um, at 22, or almost 22. Did you have much trouble sort of making that lightweight? No, my weight was pretty good at that, at that stage, Brian. Um, in saying that, though, I wasn't sure whether I was going to keep the ride or not. I, I, I sort of treated it as a one-off occasion, and then, um, you know, she, she got in the cup with a lightweight. I'm sure there's plenty of big names chasing the ride. Uh, my profile at that stage wasn't that big, and I hadn't achieved that much. You know, I was a successful apprentice and that, but as far as the group winners were concerned, you know, my resume wasn't that big. So, um, you know, I had to just sit back and wait to see if I kept the ride. And lucky enough, you know, they, they left me on her, and uh, yeah, I, I was able to make the weight quite easily. Um, uh, she, you know, she got around court, just got around court, but it wasn't really her track, but she, she still won the cup, which was great. Mm, and she got the penalty, and a hefty penalty too, but that didn't stop her in the Melbourne Cup. She uh, she was awesome that day, wasn't she? Yeah, look, she just big track horse, loved Flemington, you know, big flat track, give her a chance to balance up, and, you know, an amazing turn of foot, great acceleration. Um, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you, you only get a certain amount of horses that can do that, uh, sit back off a, off a you know, nice speed, and and have a turn of foot like she did. You know, she could find six or seven lengths very quick over a 200-metre period. She could pick them up very quickly, and, uh, and then she'd wind away. But, you know, yeah, once you go back to Flemington, the big track with a nice weight, you know, my, my job was pretty easy. Just just keep her out of trouble and uh, give her a chance to use that turn of foot she had. We hear you jockeys say when you ride, you know, the horses were the X factor, and she certainly had it. But they, the, the riders I hear say it's like getting out of a Volkswagen and sitting in a Ferrari, the difference. And the, it must be exhilarating when they pick up an animal underneath you and just accelerates like that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, it, it's quite amazing the fact that, you know, when you go on these really cl- classic horses like her, and I mean, I was enough to ride with Kyby Deaver and a few of those sort of horses, um, you know, in the run, they're not, they're not, don't seem to be burning much fuel. They just seem to be very cruisy and very idle in the race. And, uh, and you can feel it underneath you that they're not putting much effort into it. So you know that when you do ask them, uh, you know, they'll let down and, and sure enough, you know, especially uh, Let's Love and Maccabi, they had, they had a great turn of foot. And, uh, you know, you were always comfortable to just sit back and, and not have to worry about the politics of the race and tactics. You could just sit back, relax, give them plenty of room and uh, and win them wind down and um, pick them up pretty quick. quick. It was a, a race that had high drama, the uh, Cup of 91. It went to the stewards' room. Bart trained the winner in the great mayor, Let's Elope, but he trained the runner-up, She Was Revenge, which was Shane Dye, and the warning siren went, and, uh, wow, you know, what was happening? It was running on, all right, She Was Revenge, but you certainly had it covered. Um, how did you feel going into the stewards' room? There was Bart, trained first and second, protest second against first. Yeah, uh, well, I was a bit, bit stressed, as you would imagine, um, <laughs> 22 on that day and just won a Melbourne Cup, and... Well, I was going up against probably the one of the best talkers in racing at the time, being Shane Dye. Uh, it'd be like going up against Willow today. So, yes. um, yeah. you know, I had to get in there and certainly uh, put the case forward at a young age. And I was a little bit stressed, but, you know, I was lucky enough in those days. The margin was probably too great. Um, you know, we did call, I did cause a bit of carnage, but in saying that, uh, she was revenge did come out. And back in those days, when they looked at inquiries, they, they would look at the fact that if there was two people that created the... Uh, Interference that they would usually uh, dismiss the race, where maybe today it might look a little bit different. Yeah, and you got six weeks. You were suspended for six weeks. Yeah, I copped six weeks after that, which um, you know I had to cop on the chin, but I didn't worry me. Brian, I won the Melbourne Cup, mate. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and a great career you've had too. And it started out with. Uh, 
uh, Johnny Marr. Did you start out down at Epsom? Was it with Chiquita Lodge? No, I went to Epsom originally. I was originally from Parkdale, uh-huh. and I uh, went to uh, John's at, at Epsom there, and then we transferred over to Flemington when I was about 19. Yeah, and yeah. finished off the apprenticeship at Flemington. I remember your dad riding Albie, and uh, I think your grandparents, both both grandfathers, did they ride at some stage? Yeah, yeah. Mum's father was Jim Tully. He rode, and my father's um, dad was uh, Teddy King, which he was more of an amateur a rider, um, and he became a trainer. And did you always want to do it, Steve? Not really, Brian. I, um, you know, I was small at school, and. You know, being from a racing background, and obviously my uncles were jockeys too and so forth. So everyone was saying to me, oh, you'll make a jockey, you know. Uh, but in saying that, I was never really fussed. Um, I used to go to the races and pick up the betting tickets at, at the bush trucks and that with Dad, but um, I wasn't that fussed about being a jockey. And and then what happened was I got to um, about 15, and I think we did a bit of um, work experience at school, and I, I said, oh, I'll go and give it a go. So I, I went and joined up with Dean Saunders for a week. I think I... I was supposed to go there for a week. I lasted about two days. Um, I said, no, nah, not for me. And um, and went home and the old man wasn't very happy with me. He was a bit disappointed. I didn't have to give it a decent crack. So um, I went back to school and did year 10. Still not really sure which way I was going to go. And all my mates started leaving and going to trade, become tradies and so forth. And I thought, oh, I better go and give this one more crack because even in year 10, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went and seen Johnny Mann. Being Johnny sat me down and gave me an interview and, and said, oh, well, we'll give you a go and see how you go. And um, uh, Billy Walk's son, which at the time his name was Billy Walk too, he, he did a lot of dressage work with me and taught me how to ride and, and obviously the pony at the stable. And it went from there and pretty much from the age of 16, I didn't sit on the horse, but within six years I'd won a Melbourne Cup. So uh, it happened quite quick. Gee, that that was an amazing year too, 91. You won the Derby on Star of the Realm uh, for John Maher and, and there was a... A bit of heave-ho and a bit of buffeting up the straight there with um, 1D Oliver. So he would have been probably a little bit older than you at the time. And Ollie was on um, naturalism, was it? Yeah, no. Uh, he was on naturalism. Yeah, I'm older than Damien, actually. I'm older than Damien. I'm a couple of years older than Damien. So but what happened that year, yeah, he was on naturalism and was on Star of the Realm. And, yeah, we had a bit of a <laughs> bit of interference. <laughs> I think I got Ollie a couple of times. I also got the St. George on, on lifts of weight. So... That, it cost, cost me two months that time, too. Yeah, it did. It, uh, that was in the um, St. George, and uh, you're on Let's Elope, and, and Ollie was on Prince Soleri, and uh, there's a little bit of uh, heave-ho at the 600-metre mark, and you were found guilty of improper riding. That's a, that's a serious charge, and you got two months. Yeah, it cost me the Australian Cup, which, oh. which hurt, because, um, you know, going back to Flemington, she came back really good that prep, and she, going back to Flemington, she was pretty much a good thing. But anyway, these things happen, and, yeah, I always... We've been always trying to be catching up in the races for some unknown reason. <laughs> uh, the, Steve, um, the the John Ma tutorship. Uh, John is the old style trainer, great conditioner, very very good trainer. Particularly of stayers, uh, he trained what a nuisance to win a Melbourne Cup and Derby winners, etc. Um, that was obviously a very good grounding for you coming under JF Ma. Yeah, no doubt, Brian. I mean, look, he was very strict, John, and. You had to follow the rules, but um, I, I think, you know, from my point of view, it was the best thing, you know, he always made sure your boots were clean and, you know, he presented himself well and all that sort of thing. So he's very strict, but uh, he actually gave me lines one day, told me he had to write some lines out, 500 lines, and I, I actually didn't believe him at the time. And he said, 
me, you must bring the whip to the track. And I said, oh, yeah, he must be joking. And then he said, if you don't write those lines, and I don't receive them by tonight at 6 o'clock, you won't be riding. So uh, here I he was, he was 18 or 19 writing lines out. <laughs> so, yeah, he was very strict in saying that. I mean, I, for the rest of my career, it kept me focused. And I was able to be... I, was, I ended up being my toughest boss. I mean, any good sportsman will say to you that, you know, you, you've got to be hard on yourself if you want to get to the top. And, and he just, he made me just and assess myself all the time and, and put pressure on myself to be the best. And you had uh, the stint in Hong Kong. How long was that for? I sort of spent about six years off and on, Brian. I sort mm-hmm. of went there and come back. I came back in 96 when when Ollie went over and rode for Hayes. Um, Lee Friedman rang me up and said, would you like to come back? To Australia and be my stable jockey, and at that time I thought, well, it's a good opportunity for me. So I came back in '96, and I was able to get on some good horses for Lee, and I won a jockey's premiership and that, and the Scobie Breezley that year. And so yeah, I just sort of came back and forth for about a six-year period. And the Melbourne Cup, the uh, the first ride was in '89, and and you ran sixth on Citizen, who'd win a Caulfield Cup the following year in 1990. I've got you down as having 15 rides in the Cup, and and the last one. Uh, was 2011, would that be right, on a horse called That yeah. First Sight? Yeah, Yeah, that would be probably right, yep. Yeah, um, and a couple of times you were close to the money. Great Vintage in 1993, a wet day when Vintage Crop won. You ran fourth, you were sixth on here, the, uh, that bell in, in 94. Second on Count Shivers in 96 behind Saintly, so uh, not too far off the mark there. Yeah, I followed Saintly that year. I, um, I was really wrapped. I mean, Count Shivers was a tough old horse, and he was yeah. about 40 to 1, and I... End up getting on the back of Saintly, and I thought, yeah, he won't run too mile. You know, he looks a bit brilliant. So um, I followed him into the straight, and then when he let him down, he put about five on me. So uh, <laughs> I was a bad judge that day. But yeah, I can't see if he's run two for that day. A, a terrific horse that uh, was a part of John Maher's team, and we didn't see the best of him. Uh, probably there was another couple of seasons in him. Was a favourite of mine, a horse called Golden Sword. Yeah, beautiful horse, Brian. Mm. Great nature. Um, just loved him. Um, yeah, no, he was a just special horse by Cat Stad. Had a real wide eye about him, but really kind wide eye. That beautiful horse. And ready to explode um, and star of the realm to outstanding three-year-olds about the same year too. Yeah, ready to explode. He was a good horse. He, he loved a bit of wet ground. So um, if you never got a wet track, you could sort of be confident he'd run well. But that year, um, star of the realm and ready to explode, went into the derby. I was sort of chunking me which one you want to ride. And probably ready to explode had a little bit better form at the time, and I just wasn't sure. And I, I ended up, you know, I flipped the coin, and I was, when I was at home, I flipped the coin up in the air to see which one I wanted to ride. Deep down, I knew I wanted to ride Star of the Round, but the, the coin came up heads, and uh, and that was Star of the Round side. So I said, Yep, Star of the Round it is. So uh, <laughs> we went with that. And Johnny said to Mick Dippin, Which one do you want to ride, Mick? And Mick said, uh, I'll ride the big chestnut horse. And I thought, Oh, that's definitely the one I want to ride too. That year, and I was lucky enough to, to get the derby. It was a great result. Yeah, and you're also associated at uh, different stages too with a terrific galloper in um, in Costa del Lago. He won a Vic Health Cup for you in '96. Gee, he went on to be a very good young racehorse, but a champion stallion. Yeah, that's correct. You know, he, his career was probably cut a bit short, but hmm. um, you know, he was an outstanding horse and and just a beautiful looking horse. Just as you know, he was a great type and. And um, I'm sure if he kept going, he would have achieved a lot more. But no, he was good horse. I remember when you and Ollie were both uh, apprentices, so it would have been back in the 90s, and uh, there was a jockey strike 
in Sydney, uh, and you both went up there. Would that be right? Yeah, that was Warwick Farm, it was. Yeah, yeah. and you both had success, I reckon. Did you get a double that day, or did Ollie get a double? Yeah, we both, I think, between us, we were five of the winners. I was lucky enough to get on a few of the um, Ingham horses. Yeah. Um, you know, we're only kids, and I think I won the up-and-coming stakes on Patronise, one of those sorts of horses, and I wrote research. Mm-hmm. Um, Algonquin Club. So, yeah, we're very lucky that year because we end up being like the main two kids up there. <laughs> and when I look at um, the Futurity Stakes back in 1993, you were able to get on the uh, great uh, grey sprinter Scalacci. G. he was a machine, wasn't he? Yeah, look, that that was a great thrill. I mean, you know, uh, at the time, I, I think 1,400, he hadn't won over the 1,400, correct if I'm wrong. But, yeah, and that was uh, the year um, he jumped out and he led and, and he put him away, but he was a bit older and a bit more relaxed too, so it probably helped. But uh, no, he was a beautiful nature to And you had, um, you broke away from John Maher, I think it might have been about 95 around then, and went your own way, and you had the stint, as you say, off and on in Hong Kong, but you came back and you became number one rider for Lee Freeman. There was success to follow from, from there too. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I came back in 96 and, and rode for Lee, and as I said, you know, we, he had an outstanding book of horses. I mean, I think I remember sitting at Flemington, standing in the middle. At the time, Greg Hall was riding mostly for Lloyd, and I was doing the rest of the riding. And I think he had, honestly, he would have had eight or nine individual Group 1 horses walking around us in the middle. So he he had a good bunch of Group 1 horses there. Yeah, good filly, Special Harmony. Yeah, Special Harmony. Yeah, I didn't ride her. I actually wasn't on her, but, um, yeah, she she was around. And uh, the... um Hurricane Sky, the Blue Diamond, about 1994. Uh, yeah, he was a horse. Uh, did Joe Ryan have him then? He did, yeah, yeah. he did. Um, he was tough. You know, Joe had him up and running as young horses, and he was pretty switched on, and and uh, he knew exactly what he had to do, but he was a big, strong, tough horse, and that was a good race that year because Mr Vitality and me sort of went quite solid, and uh, I think we ran a record. I'm not sure whether it's mm. been broken today, even. When you when you're coming into the stables, you, you talk about sort of you know started around sixteen. You've probably seen it with your own son Lockie, and we'll talk about him in a moment. But you're you're, you're young teenagers going into a man's world. How how tough is that to you know to to actually make that transition when you're going through you know, different stages in your life? But at a young age, all of a sudden, it's a tough world too. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, it becomes sort of. Um... You know, if you're a bit soft, you, you toughen up quickly. Uh, you know, you get a lot of kicks in the backside and, and the jocks at the race to sort of let you know when you're doing the wrong thing. So and back then it was probably a little bit even harder. So, um, you know, yeah, you grow up quite quickly. Within a four- or five-year period, you go from being a kid to a, to a man pretty much. And, um, yeah, it, it is quite competitive out there and tough. And But at the end of the day, that's the world we live in. What do you see uh, when you t- turn on the television and watch racing now? What what do you see as far as the class of rider is and toe in the iron? I, I don't recall you having your toe in your iron, the iron that you may have, but uh, what, what do you see now, Steve? Oh, look, it's a different style of riding. I mean, you know, racing's evolving and that's fine. And, you know, at the end of the day, the jocks are outstanding. You know, we've got some superstars out there. So, um, you know, it's just a different world. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in the era where, you know, you'd ask, if you'd be in Barrier 9, you'd ask Mick Dittman, where are you going to be? Mick, Mick would tell you he's going to be in the box suit. And sure enough, he'd be in the box suit. You know, he, he, if you got in his way, he just would have polexed you. So, <laughs> you know, it was a lot tougher as far as, you know, you could push blokes around and a lot more fiercer. Where today, it's a bit more lane racing, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And the um, the, the real hot ch- chestnut at the moment is the whip and the use of the whip and how many times you can strike a horse, etc. And what part of the race can you can you strike? And I remember going back a good few years ago, and and you made some comments that were quite pertinent, and they're very much now um, where you know you you wanted to see less use of the whip and maybe a couple of strikes, but that was about all. Um, you probably had a good read on it at the time, and that's going back a few years. Well, it's a different world, but in saying that, I mean, look, there's no doubt. Look at the old old videos, and you, you cringe at them. You know, it was too much. But um, to be honest, I still ride horses crack work, and it's been part of my time since I've been a kid. I couldn't ride a horse without a, without having a whip, just to even guide the horse, because you know horses will take advantage of you. If they know you haven't got it, they'll test you. So you need that whip on the horse to let them know, hey, I'm in control here. You know, you have to do what I want, and uh, otherwise you take the whip away, and you're going to get a lot more people get injured. Well, we know with horses, there's got to be a master, doesn't there? Well, it does. I mean, you're on an animal, and he's half a ton of animal, and I mean, in the day, they padded whips. I mean, they're completely different whips to what we used back when I was race riding. That was leather and kangaroo hide and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. it's a different different tool today, and it's not a, it's a feather duster. And basically, all this is a guide. Um, but you need it, you need to have it, otherwise you know you're going to get so many people injured. And the fact is, you're a half a ton of animal will take advantage of you. I think um, maybe we should change the title. Don't call it whip. Call it a corrector or a persuader. Right. I, I don't know, but big, yeah. the whip whip sort of you know the, connotates a sort of uh, flogging that that type of thing, doesn't yeah, it? That, so, yeah, that then days. I mean, look, it's completely different industry now and I mean um, you know the image has to be better so uh, yeah we have to change with it and um, I'm sure we can it's just a matter of the right people getting together with their heads. You must be a proud dad with uh, Lockie riding so well and and he's a chip off the old block he's uh, he's doing doing extremely well where's he at now? Where's he at as far as in his career? Yeah. I think he's going really well Brian he's got an extension he ended up in another 12 months extension on his apprenticeship which I think he needed he's not quite ready to be a senior so he's still going to have 12 months in his apprenticeship, which is going to help him. I mean, it's going to be perfect for him over the next 12 months. And, I mean, the fact is he's getting some good opportunities now. And um, I watch him ride. He's very strong hands and heels. So, I mean, if, if that whip rule does get stricter, I mean, he's not going to have any problem whatsoever adapting to the new style as far as going forward because he's very strong hands and heels. Jockey. Did he want to do it from uh, from day dot? Uh, he's quite sort of, he was really athletic and played good footy and always very sporty, uh, always outside, loved animals. So he was always probably heading that way. But, uh, once again, I didn't push him in the, to racing or get him ponies. I gave him motorbikes to the farm. They rode their motorbikes, that sort of thing. But yeah, he came in and said, I'll give it a go. And I sat down and gave him all the negatives, which you suppose, you know, you should do as a father. And he went to his mum and said, well, if I listen to that, I won't do it because he told me pretty much all. It's a terrible game, but I just wanted to make sure he was ready for it and the pressure he's going to have following me through the system. I'm, I know it'd be tough, you know, it'd be very hard, you know, because he needs to make his own mark. And then once he decided to do it, I said to my wife, I said, it's probably time I, I moved on and, and moved aside and gave him free reign at it. And Steve, you, you spoke of the farm. Do you adjust horses now? No, I don't, Brian. I'm, I'm sort of down at Flemington Rod and work and doing bits and pieces and, uh, you know, I'm loving it. So, uh, I need to get some more stock on here. I've got too much grass at the moment, so I need to get some more cattle on here. But uh, I just love being on the farm and enjoying the lifestyle. 
you uh, you enjoyed um, some time, of course, with Lloyd Williams riding track work up there at Macedon Lodge. Tell us a little bit about that because we've seen so much success come off that property over the years. Yeah, beautiful property, um, as you would imagine. I mean, got all the tools and um, got access to everything he, he needs, and the, the horses, the high class horses, you know, they're, they're quality horses. So, um, you know, I really enjoyed it. Got a chance to go to Sydney with a few horses and that. So, you know, it was a great experience. Learned a lot there, and um, something that you know you, you, you try to sort of look at going forward, what you can take out of out of Master Lodge and put into what you want to do. And what about you? Uh, there was talk about a training partnership with Steve Richards at Flemington. Is where, where's that at? Well, he's got thirteen boxes down there at Flemington, perfect little stable, and um, you know I want to look at sort of having a few horses myself and, and being involved and. Actually, the natural progression would be to if we can get the numbers up, you know, you'd go into partnership. You need a certain amount of numbers to, to train. Um, uh, otherwise, you, you can't go partners. So at the moment, our numbers aren't big enough. But as time goes on and we can get some results, hopefully get some numbers up and um, and, and uh, build the team up, we might be able to become partners and then down the track see what happens. And you, uh, you're still riding work, you said? Yeah, still riding work, Brian. I love it. Yeah. Cut the middleman out. I don't need jockeys coming in telling me what's going on. So um, <laughs> I like to ride it myself. I can. Tr- I'm allowed to troll them, which is good. And yeah. Flemington do the jump outs. So yeah, yeah. no, it's really good. And, you know, I can tweak up things from my point of view, and then Steve can do his things from the stables' point of view. So you know, as I said before, you know, we've just got a lot of babies at the moment, and it's been time-consuming because you know you're putting them in, putting them out, and very patient because you're only small stuff. You got to look after them. We haven't got big numbers, so uh, every horse is important to us. So. Yeah, it'll take time. We're never going to be big. We've only got 13 boxes, so it's never going to be a monstrous or 50 horses or nothing like that. So it's perfect. Yeah, it's good to hear. And I can't let you go without asking you about the 2003 Cox Plate. Right. What a day. What a day. <laughs> Remember that meeting? Yeah. At Lindsay Park, they have a chat about how we're going to beat this horse, Bongo. That's right. Yep, yep. Yeah, we, we sat down. That was on the Friday before the Cox Plate. We had a meeting and we watched the videos and... We devised a plan which you you executed beautifully, and the plan was to be in front of Lonroe, uh, draw him up to you, and turn it into a dogfight. And, and I cannot, I still can't believe calling that race at the halfway mark. It was going to script. Did, did you feel the same way? Yeah, look, I mean, if you put the plan, it doesn't always go that way, but it certainly did that day. I mean, the fact was, you know, Lonroe was a big flag horse in the race, and we knew the only way we we're going to sort of put him under pressure and beat him was the making chases. We, we knew Fields loved the Valley, so um, and it worked out well, didn't it? It worked out perfect. Oh, well, I, I still can't get over how you made him change legs and how you did that turning for home, and, and I still watch that in slow motion, and you see him, he sort of burrows down and then comes up again underneath you. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, amazing horse. I mean, as you, as you are aware, he had square, square wheels, so he, um, <laughs> you know, he did a good job. What a champion. Yeah, it was a great time. But, Steve, that Melbourne Cup uh, back in 1991, um, when you reflect back now at 22 years of age, was it too early? Did it sort of come to you too quickly, do you think? How did you sort of handle it? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, you look at it two ways. I mean, it gave me a resume to, to travel. I, I pretty much went to Hong Kong at 24 years of age or something. So that was fantastic. And I mean, you, I wouldn't want to take that back because... Um, you know, and the fact was, what an absolute champion she was to get on. I, you know, it's something that most jockeys dream of their whole career. But going forward from then on, I was always looking for another one. It was very hard to find another one. Mm. Just 
they just, you just they come along once in a lifetime, and that was my that was my time. I was meant to be at, at 22 years of age. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a fabulous day and a great time, as you say, it, uh, in, in your life as well. Thanks for talking with us, um, reflecting back on that uh, great race, the Melbourne Cup in 1991. Safe ride in the uh, trials and the track, and, and good luck to your young fella, Lockie, as well. Thanks, Brian. Good on you. Stephen King, champion rider, uh, a great part of the history of the Melbourne Cup.